from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. It's Kurt Anderson. When I was a kid, one comic strip character pretty perfectly represented the anxieties and insecurities of growing up. This middling, hopeful slash melancholy eight-year-old named Charlie Brown. Those kids look like they're having a lot of fun. I wish they liked me. Nobody likes me. But for kids growing up in the 1990s, there was another lovable humdrum cartoon boy. Doug wasn't competing to, like, be the coolest or, like, be the broiest. He's, like, not the smartest. He's not the popular kid. He's not the rich kid. He was just, like, a guy. But I felt like I related to that very much because I was also not a super cool kid. They're talking about Doug. It was one of the first animated series produced by the groundbreaking kids' channel Nickelodeon. The people running Nickelodeon in the 90s looked around at animated series of the era and saw a lot of half-hour-long toy commercials passing as entertainment. The cartoon series Transformers was literally created by Hasbro. Care Bears and American Greetings production. He-Man, Mattel. Now I have the power. He-Man and Skeletor each sold separately from Mattel. So Nick decided to make their own cartoons that weren't going to be product extensions. On one Sunday in August 1991, they debuted three ambitious new animated shows. The whimsical talking baby series Rugrats. A baby's got to do what a baby's got to do. The manic, scatological, fabulous Ren and Stimpy. You'll never believe what happened. Something came out of my butt. And a show about this kid named Doug. Dear Journal, hi, it's me, Doug. You know, I never thought getting my picture taken was a big deal until I had to get it taken for photo swap day. It all started when... Our Studio 360 production team has been digging into Nickelodeon's golden era and this show in particular. Here is producer Evan Chung. There's nothing flashy about the show, Doug. It's drawn with simple lines and painted with soft colors. It takes place in a typical American suburb, the fictional town of Bluffington. Look out, Bluffington. The funny family's arrived. And there's certainly nothing flashy about the central character. Well, I'm Doug. Funny. Doug is a soft-spoken, anxious sixth grader. What if they think I'm a doofus? He plays the banjo and wears khaki shorts and a white T-shirt under a green sweater vest. Cool outfit. Natural fibers, huh? Doug, to me, he's this understated guy that if you pay attention and get to know him, there's a lot going on. That's Jim Jenkins, the creator of Doug. But he's not a loser. I mean, I think that uh, Charlie Brown, you know, his catchphrase was good grief. That's not Doug. Doug is just sort of, 
an average guy, just sort of in the middle. This little guy who's 11 and a half years old, and he's left-handed, and a lot of times feels out in left field. You see what I did there? I just can't figure it out. What did I do? It's Doug's befuddlement that fuels the narrative of the show. Each episode is an entry in Doug's journal as he confronts the everyday anxieties of grade school life, however mundane. I look stupid in hats. My head's a weird shape. I've never had a cavity in my life. This is terrible. Why couldn't our kite just be cool like everybody else's? Doug was voiced by Billy West, who's also known for doing half the characters on Futurama. Billy West also played Doug's main tormentor, the school bully Roger Klotz. So funny. There seems to be ketchup on my new suede shoes. What are we going to do about that? Pretend this never happened? Doug always turns to his best friend, Skeeter Valentine, for advice. Yo, Doug. (laughs) What's up? Skeeter's the guy that's very different from Doug. Oh, everyone can dance, Doug. It's just moving around without going anywhere. Yeah, Skeeter is, you know, just optimistic. Fred Newman voiced Skeeter along with many other characters on Doug. He's also the guy who, for decades, made the funny noises on A Prairie Home Companion. If Doug is doubtful... Skeeter's right. Full speed ahead. Come on, man. Let's do it. And Doug has a secret crush, Patty Mayonnaise. Would you like to have supper at my house Sunday night? Supper? You mean you and me? Yeah. You and me and Skeeter and Chalky and BB and Roger. You know, the whole gang. She was the girl that girls would love as much as boys would love. Constance Shulman, who you'd probably recognize as Yoga Jones in Orange is the New Black, was the voice of Patty. She was totally truthful, honest. And she's cute and smart and funny. Just somebody that girls and boys would want to be friends with. Hey, how would you guys like to play on your very own softball team? But we're terrible. Well, I say we can be as good as anybody. We just need a chance to show what we can do. These relationships didn't come out of thin air either. They came directly from Jim's life. Yes, Doug. (laughs) I love Doug is me, really. If you saw me, you'd see I have nine hairs, just like Doug. And just the personality is directly my memory sort of exaggerated a wee bit, but um, it's how I remember being a kid. And my memories of growing up in, in Richmond, Virginia, in the suburbs. Jim began drawing the character in the mid-80s, just for himself, in what was basically a visual journal reflecting on his life. At the time, he was trying to make ends meet as a freelance artist in New York City. What I did was build a loft in my bedroom, and underneath was my drawing board and all my art stuff. But at night, I'd climb up in that loft and um, pull out paper and pencil and just doodle. And it developed into this series of single-panel cartoons about this character that I call Brian. And the more I began to know the character and get to know him, I thought, you know, Brian is, let's face it, that's just a really fancy name. It's too fancy for this character. I want to call him Doug, because Doug just kind of sounds like a thud. Eventually, Jim decided to introduce Doug to the world. He adapted his series of cartoons into a children's book proposal. And took it around New York City and got rejected by the very finest of publishers. But it was at that very same time when that upstart cable TV channel Nickelodeon was on the lookout for its first original cartoons. Yeah, I didn't know Jim at all. 
Vanessa Coffey was the new head of animation at Nickelodeon. He heard that I was taking pitches and stuff, so he came in and uh, he brought this book that was like a little Xerox book. And uh, it was called Doug Gets a New Pair of Shoes. And he looked just like that character. And he was the most gentle guy and just kind and warm and fun. And we probably spent 15 minutes together before I decided this is something I want to do. That's a big deal, a really huge deal. Uh, Even today, that's a big deal. The idea of it not coming from some pre-sold idea that had gone on before, but that is just completely unheard of. And uh, to let it be a creator-driven project is just amazing to me. Because up till that point, there had been a lot of cartoons made that were not one person's vision. They were made in kind of an assembly line process. Linda Semensky helped Vanessa Coffey develop Nickelodeon's cartoons. And they came up with this idea that these cartoons would be creator-driven. Or, you know, if you were a film theorist, you would call this, you know, the auteur-driven cartoon. So auteur meaning that someone thought it up and and knew the world and could communicate to everyone what this was about, and it was one person's vision. Jim Jenkins' vision was all about subtlety. He made a series of unconventional choices that gave every aspect of Doug's production that understated style. Take the show's musical scoring. Unlike the bombastic, laser-happy soundtrack of a cartoon like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Doug relied on the sparest touches of guitar. And weird mouth noises. I want it to sound like a kid. Fred Newman worked with composer Dan Sawyer to create the show's minimalist sound design. Everything about that show was meant to be, from a kid's point of view, a kid's journal. And so this, the music had to be that way, too. It had to be, like, homemade. You know, Fred's bringing in empty tuna fish cans full of water and thumping it for, you know, a musical instrument. A lot of uh, use of, a, like, kazoos and things... I'm guessing you you won't be able to to know uh, by hearing it, it's pistachio shells. If you do it that way, kids are empowered. They go, they can go, you know, and and that empowerment uh, is such a surprise. Jim brought a subtle approach to the animation as well. I grew up with, with, you know, Disney cartoons and Warner Brothers cartoons, which has big eyes, big expressive eyes with eyeballs and pupils and eyelashes. Yvette Kaplan came on board as an animation director to help bring Jim's quirky drawings to life. Doug characters are a dot for eyes, which as, a, as an artist, I loved characters that had dots for eyes because I felt that the audience can bring themselves into this character. I think the thing that initially drew me was the unstructured line, was the simplicity of it. I also had them pull back on color saturation, just so that you're not getting punched in the face with this show, which would describe a lot of what was being played at the time on, on Saturday morning, that this was going to be a more subtle package. Jim chose to paint the backgrounds in soft watercolors, and he gave the characters a rainbow of skin tones, from beige and peachy to periwinkle and teal. I started moving into lavenders and greens and all these amazing colors, and it was just fun. Jim infused the plot lines with subtlety, too. 
while Transformers was about heroic talking cars locked in epic battle with evil talking cars, Doug's world was a lot smaller, but the emotional stakes were somehow even higher. Is something bugging you, Skeeter? I can't come to the party tomorrow, Doug. What? Why not? I just found out I'm moving. Moving? I wasn't trying to be breaking the rules of animation. I just felt like that was a, that kind of story was at the core of a kid's life. You see yourself in those characters. That's Ken Scarborough. He was the head writer on Doug. Doug was a little bit of an every kid, and he found himself in, in typical kid situations, I would say. I mean, obviously, we pushed it toward kind of comedic situations. It sort of puts you in the shoes of somebody who is facing something. He did remind me of myself. Adriana Schwarz grew up watching Doug and identified with how he coped with life's daily challenges. The way he would daydream while he was in class, the way that Doug would imagine himself actually being these other parts of him. It looked like Patty was in serious trouble. Hmm, I wonder how Quail Man would handle this. Doug seemed to be more shy, and then he would just imagine himself to be this other type of kid. And I think when I was young, too, I was shy. And I just think him like, trying to be more comfortable with like who he is, that's what I really you know, liked about him. And then there was Doug's quiet pining for patty mayonnaise. In fact, the only thing I ever wanted to do from the first day I came to Bluffington was to be near her. It's all I ever dreamed of. This was something that fan Daniel Schroeder certainly identified with. Having an unrequited crush, that resonated with me because as like a closeted gay kid, I had a lot of unrequited crushes. And so to like see this boy always pining for this girl who was oblivious to his advances, it was just like, oh, I can recognize what those feelings are in myself, even if I don't recognize what those feelings mean. Well, I'm not much of a songwriter, but when I'm thinking about Patty, well, sometimes a song just comes out. Like this one I was working on today. Patty, you're the pickle on my coleslaw. Patty, you're the sugar in my tea. Patty, you're the relish on my hot dog. And Patty, you're the mayonnaise for me. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Patty, you're the mayonnaise for me. But not every kid could completely identify with the character. I, I didn't quite see myself in Doug. This is Doug fan Jason DeLeon. I did grow up in a middle-class white suburban upbringing, but I was one of the few brown guys in the entire town. And so Doug was helping me translate the white middle-class experience a little bit. Many non-white fans did unconsciously find themselves relating to Doug's teal-skinned best friend, Skeeter. <laughs> what you doing, Doug? They never explicitly said it. But Skeeter's fucking black, all right? That's just like this is comedian Wes Hazard on stage in 2016. You believe me, and this is reductive, but do a Google image search. The top two images are Skeeter, one, holding a basketball and drinking a grape juice. <laughs> and also, second one, DJing a house party, all right? Like, yeah, Skeeter was black as fuck, and I love that dude. <laughs> Offstage, Wes is quick to point out that there is much more to blackness than that. None of those traits is being black. It is very reductive. I want to be very clear about that. But versus all the other characters, um, you know, it was definitely noticeable. Absolutely not intentional. It's something that just the audience decided and figured out on their own. Sometimes I'm asked point blank, is Skeeter an African-American? Uh, is he black? And I go, no, he's blue. The weird thing is, Doug is pretty much the only character who doesn't have a crazy skin color. Skeeter is teal, Patty, his crush, is orange, Roger the bully is green, but Doug 
is clearly white. Doug is my point of view, but I did not consciously go, oh, the lead of this show is going to be a white guy. That was never on my mind. Doug defied the conventions of cartoons in so many ways, aiming at relatable stories within every kid at its center. But the show's creators still could only conceive of the every kid as white. And looking back at it, that makes Wes Hazard a little uncomfortable. A cartoon in 1991 aimed at, like, seven- and eight-year-olds does not have to be James Baldwin. <laughs> like, you know, it doesn't have to, to come at race on that level. At the same time, Doug is clearly white, and then you've chosen to make no one else have a assigned real race. If you do that, you're pretty much just saying, okay, white as a race gets to be its own thing, and everybody else is like Crayola, you know? And, and so that is a statement unto itself. If that's what the creator is going to say, I have to be like, mm, maybe not. It's disappointing that the Doug creators were so oblivious about addressing race in the show because they made a point of having every episode grapple with tricky moral issues. I wanted the shows to have some message. Doug learned everything the hard way, and he would fail. He would make the wrong choice and and pay dearly for it. It was my fault. It was just a dumb fib that got out of hand. I'm sorry, everybody. So I asked the writers to, at the top of the their script on the, t- on the cover page to write, what does Doug learn from this story? Write it down. So we all know that we're driving towards making that point. Not everybody on the writing staff was into that approach. It's so interesting. I don't even like that show. Kenneth Lonergan is an Oscar-winning screenwriter and director, best known for his 2016 film Manchester by the Sea. But his first writing job was on Doug. Do you know that show? That, you know, they were all Christian fundamentalists who produced that show? Oh, yeah. They had, I actually liked them a lot, but they had prayer meetings and all this kind of thing. And there was a big, uh, yeah, it was a big, uh, I won't say front for a Christian fundamentalist organization, but it was a very, very Christian show. Doug was not a front, but that was a running joke among some of its writers. Jim came from the Church of Christ, which is a very small outfit. Head writer Ken Scarborough. I'd go over to his house and there'd be Bibles all over the place. And I think he preached as a kid. There was a time where I thought I was going to be a youth pastor. Then I actually did it for a year. My, my parents were very, uh, not just religious people, they were deeply spiritual people. You know, and I, uh, I'm not religious at all. I can't say that anything that was in there was purely religiously motivated other than how do you live your life? You know, what is the golden rule? Treat others like you want to be treated, you know. But that principle is in all religion, all major ones. And it's because it's the wisdom of the ages, and it's always going to be meaningful. But there were times when Jim's beliefs clashed with the more secular writers on the staff. The biggest fight broke out over the episode, Doug's in the Money. I wanted Doug to trip across money. Hey, look. Money. Holy cow. This is a ton of money. Like $14,500. What do you do? And I just, it was like that because that's just beyond anything a kid can possibly imagine. And so I wanted kids to ponder that, you know. And so as we began to beat out the the story beats of that, that story, there was a revolt. Jim wanted Doug to return the money to the sweet old lady who lost it. My envelope of money. I don't know where it is. You know, for Jim, it's like you find a bag of money, you give it back. There's no question, you know. And for us on the writer's side, it's like, well, that's the end of the story. You're a weirdo, funny. Nobody in the universe would turn in free money. (laughs) 
our writers went nuts. I remember that got kind of personal, and it was like as close to a knockdown drag out as it ever got over there. It was a yelling match about this silly story. Right there was the sort of fight between saints and sinners, the Christian worldview and the ethical, which is both our inheritance in America. We have the, both this, uh, both the uh, Judeo-Christian path and we have the Greek ethical path and we, we find our way to balance them. I and it was right there in that room. Ultimately, Jim had the final say. So Doug does the good Christian thing. And there's this wonderful moment, I think, where he goes to return the money to the, um, the, the sweet old lady. Lady, I think this belongs to you. I hope you like spearmint. And so she gives him a pack of gum, and that's it. I love that Doug didn't get any reward, really. He just he just did it. He did the right thing. As it turns out, moral complexity isn't necessarily a lucrative marketing strategy. Doug's numbers and retail potential couldn't compete with the other flashier Nickelodeon cartoons, Rugrats and Ren and Stimpy, Nickelodeon's Vanessa Coffey. Ren and Stimpy doubled our ratings for the network. The second or third rerun was the highest rated television show on cable. We all felt like the sort of quiet geeks in the room. Doug voice actor Fred Newman. The others were way out there, really sort of busting, busting territory. And we felt like we were this, the odd man out in that way, this, this little show. And Doug was a little bit of the underdog because he was a sweet guy. He didn't, the underdog. <laughs> Doug was a bit of the underdog because he was a sweet guy. But I do think it never quite got the press that the other did. And, you know, when they had meetings about toys and whatever, you know, they're making all kinds of toys for Ren and Stimpy in particular and then Rugrats. And, you know, then they go, oh, and Jim, here's your snack tray for Doug. And it was sort of, it obviously was uh, not getting quite the attention from the leadership at Nickelodeon that I had hoped for. This is Doug Funny. He could have been one of Bluffington's finest, but no, he chose the path of the loser. Let's hope this loser out of town. In 1994, Nickelodeon canceled Doug after only four seasons, and Jim was heartbroken. I said the F-dash-dash-dash word, just yelled it, which doesn't happen with me very often. Now, there was no official word on why exactly, but what's undeniable is that neither the ratings nor the merchandise sales were at the top. Doug was definitely in third place, and that's the best I can make of it, really. Remember, the very reason that Nicktoons was created was to be the antithesis of the merchandising-first philosophy of other cartoons. But they ended up keeping the shows that sold the most toys and canceling the one that was harder to market. Doug did find a new life with Disney from 1996 to 1999, but it got Disneyfied in the process, with brighter colors and louder sound design. Uh, Doug Funny? Funny? Is that a banjo? Who ever heard of a banjo in a marching band? Compare that to the quiet musical touches from the original Doug episodes. Oh, man. Oh, brother. In the end, the story of Doug is paradoxical. It was a show about how nice guys didn't have to finish last. That finished last. And what doomed it was exactly what made it special. 
its quietness, its morality. It turns out those very qualities shaped the people who grew up watching it. When kids come up, they're now somewhere between their mid-20s to mid-30s. And they say something like, thank you for showing me the way or showing me how to grow up or how to become a, a happy person. Or There's some incredibly deep, thoughtful thing that they're saying about what Doug did for them. And that's what I think the Doug legacy is. Today, I found out that you can lose and still feel like a winner. Thanks to Michael Zadorozny, Carol Stabile, Sophia Verba, Natish Pawa, Morgan Flannery, and the former Nickelodeon executive Ann Kramer, who, full disclosure, happens to be my wife. Coming up. Plastic doesn't have to look like plastic. Here in the pink Taj Mahal, it looks like skin. The enchanting otherworldly sculptures of Rena Banerjee. I like the idea of skin being peeled off the Taj Mahal in its original location and brought here. A kind of shedding as a snake would in transforming itself. I talked with her about the global inspirations underlying the work in her first major retrospective. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. This winter, the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts in Philadelphia is giving a big retrospective show to an artist who's only 55. I say only because such life achievement exhibits are usually devoted to the famous elderly and dead. The show of Rena Banerjee's work from the last 20 years had me at the title. It's called Make Me a Summary of the World. And it includes some drawings and paintings, but it's mostly these big, wildly colorful and complicated multimedia sculptures and installations that hang from the ceiling and spill out of walls and hover over the floor. The idea of rising is to really keep movement uh, away from this kind of gravity that we have, where we like to anchor everything down. It is a conceptual and psychological space of freedom. And the title of the exhibition I like so much is the same as a sculpture that Rena Banerjee made in 2004. It is maybe seven feet tall and stands on a little platform and is kind of, sort of, figurative with this cage-like body and all sorts of objects, a, a doll's head, plastic horns, glass chandelier drops, fake flowers, toy umbrellas that lean and protrude like body parts. All the things that drip from it like a waterfall are a kind of implication of how the world is so fertile for all these things, both natural and man-made. And all these things has been in some sense, separated, divorced, sifted out, filtered out as ours, not nature's. And so Make Me a Summary of the World tries to contain all that which is on the earth as one whole place, not a 
a variation on the earth itself. And there is an umbrella held above, which is which is a thing that suggests this like a parasol collection of yeah. bones and horns. Rather, uh, is a, is a figure, is a humanoid figure of yeah. some kind. And really kind of the clustering of all those things so they become like a nugget, like a barnacle almost, where things appear to be both attached and not attached. That kind of fragmentation and fragility that can happen when you don't screw things in and they look like, have that kind of, does it look like one thing or is it separate things? That kind of uh, tension that you can draw when things are not attached, and and the umbrellas are are, are specifically Chinese looking, like little yeah, umbrellas that come in your drinks. They're at, really at the Polynesian tourist, restaurants. Yeah, yeah, the tour exactly. <laughs> you got it. The tourist kind of um, umbrellas, and I got them here in uh, Manhattan in Pearl River, which is a tourist destination in Chinatown. Yeah, and I think a lot of the early sources. I got from Zagat surveys. I would go and look at what the tourist destination. And so one of them in Soho was Evolution Store. And I would get some seashells and horns and things Which is a shop that sells natural history-ish gifts. Variety of primal things that we used to collect. So looking at a a Zagat guide for for tourist destinations, you mean not restaurants, which they're most famous for, what were you using the Zagat guide to find? Well, it gives you an understanding of how tourism is directed and what kinds of things people look for. And so the Zagat guide is interested in nourishment, of all kinds, both entertainment, seeing, but also directing what culture is. Because one of the things we consume in this big industry is culture itself. And we have anticipate that culture will be different in all the places that are destinations. So the little write-ups of this Thai restaurant or this Vietnamese restaurant or this Peruvian restaurant led you to understand the framing of exotics? Yeah, and it's also not only what is exotic, but how the urban place is defined by the exotic, that one goes to an urban destination to find, again, not only, not just the place, who the New Yorkers are, or let's say who the Chicago people are, but to find the world deposited there. It's a treasure chest. So here's another piece. You call it Take Me, Take Me, Take Me to the Palace of Love. It's from 2003, and it's this bright pink Taj Mahal, uh, the size of a shed, uh, suspended in air, uh, and looks to be made of plastic. Plastic doesn't have to look like plastic. Here in the pink Taj Mahal, plastic looks like skin. And so the impression that plastic takes upon your hands when you squeeze it into thin wafers, crepe-like, and make the walls of the Taj Mahal allows you to feel it as if it's an animal, like as if it can breathe. And the air that flows all through it when it hangs a foot off the ground has this feeling of circus and carnival. Yes. No, the, the, the being off the ground is fantastic. And it's what, like 12 feet tall? Or? It's 16 feet tall and 13 by 13 foot in footprint the whole structure. So those materials, they're made in such a way that it appears to be shedding or peeling off. I like the idea of skin being peeled off the Taj Mahal itself in its original location and brought here. 
a kind of shedding as a snake would in transforming itself. But I have to say the Taj Mahal is famous because of the legend of two people, the romance behind it, and all the pilgrimages that take place are global. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think the what I learned from it is this idea of the individual making monuments out of places rather than a country choosing a monument. Huh. And so I'm very interested in that kind of personal history that kind of allows something that is as temporal as this to become monumental. So this exhibit at this grand old museum, what really makes it so exceptional uh, and wonderful is how your art is juxtaposed among the the permanent collection of 17th and 18th century uh, pieces. Here is a great example of that. We are looking at a photo of your show. There's this big wall with an arched doorway, and through that we see one of your sculptures. But what's interesting is the arched door and your piece are, are framed by two big classical portraits from the 1700s, a, a Gilbert Stuart painting of George Washington and then one uh, a less familiar one by an English artist of George III. So you got the president on one side. Yeah, and on the other side is a king. And so there is this compressed between the arch of this beautiful edifice are these two paintings of leadership, one royal and one voted upon, you know. And I think it compresses between this arched walkway, which arrives at a, at a sculpture, which I call her captivity. Which you made from this big Victorian birdcage with all these autumnal colored feathers and other stuff sprouting out of it. And it talks about freedom, the freedom to choose, the freedom to express, the freedom to be outside of this Victorian birdcage with all these vines just oozing out and dripping with... Um, gourds and squashes and cocoa nuts and all these things that we pleasure in in thinking of paradise, a place where we bring resources together and a government which distributes it. Well, in in the museum, it makes for this great triptych uh, with your work, which which is so alive and, and, and festive, bracketed by these sober Anglo-American colonial and anti-colonial images. Yeah, it's not only festive, but meaningful-wise. I think her captivity is all about all these things that we want to contain within the birdcage as an object in itself become released, become free. There's a kind of explosion that takes A declaration of independence, you could say. Yeah, you could say that in this golden room. I mean, I think the two figures which lean on one foot and step forward— is all about order and power. And here there is this complete joy in the whole of all those things that can be released when power is distributed in a way that allow for that joy to come through. You were born in Calcutta, uh, but your family moved to the States when you were seven. Uh, You lived in Philadelphia and New York City. After living here for almost 50 years, does being an immigrant still influence the work you do? Well, I think immigration is something that I had to think about from the day I was aware of my identity. So it was always something that paralleled my life, that was intricately connected to how I felt about myself. But it was a forced identity as well. 
because feeling like an immigrant makes you always feel like you don't belong and that you are an intruder and you're trespassing. Even in Queens, New York? Even in Queens, New York, you are aware who's the dominant culture and that you are not part of that culture. And I think that's very difficult for a child because you want to see the whole world as your family. That is our impulse. And interesting to that point, you in your work use an African piece here and a, a Chinese tourist icon here. You freely, as we now say, culturally appropriate, right? I don't know if this idea of appropriation and policing it as such is also fruitful in exploring who we are. I think that we can tell when a kind of reach for another culture, a desire to communicate, or a desire for intimacy with another culture is sincere. Well, yeah, and done in good faith. I, yeah, is sincere. Yeah. And we ha- I think we have antennas for that all the time. And we are able to, because I think it's a very complicated relationship, um, not one that can be deciphered by, you know, formal issues and kind of trespasses that say what is authentic and what is not. This is not a time I think we should lay restrictions on those things. Hear, hear. <laughs> uh, Rena Banerjee, your work is fantastic, and I'm so pleased for you having this retrospective uh, at this relatively young age. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. It's Great been a pleasure to, to be able to share with you. The retrospective of Rena Banerjee's art, Make Me a Summary of the World, is up through March at the Museum of the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts in Philadelphia. You can see pictures of the exhibit, including all the art she and I talked about, at studio360.org. And speaking of emigrating from east to west, there's a new play on that subject where the actors are so close that the audience can touch them. And they sometimes do. You know, when I sit beside the audience, there are moments where people will put their hand on me. What the play, The Jungle, has to teach us about refugees and empathy. That is next on Studio 360. Studio 360. There's a new play about the refugee wave from the Middle East and North Africa the last few years called The Jungle, which was the nickname of an infamous migrant camp on the French coast in Calais. It's where thousands of refugees gathered before attempting to cross the channel to the UK to try to get asylum. The camp is the setting for the new play, and in its production at one of the great American venues for new work, St. Anne's Warehouse in Brooklyn, the jungle puts the audience inside the action, everybody seated in a replica of the Afghan restaurant that served as the real-life camp's unofficial town center. Reporter Jeff London has our story. When you enter the St. Anne's Warehouse performance space, you're given a ticket that tells you not only your seat number, but what country you'll be sitting in. In my case, it was Somalia, seat 24. 
Walking past a sign pointing me towards an Afghan restaurant, I found myself inside a structure that looked like a large tent with lots of tables. A man offered me chai, and all around the space, actors were chatting in different languages. Hi, I'm Nahal Tezgai. I play a character called Helen Gabrachidan. I am originally Eritrean, and the character I'm playing is Eritrean. The areas are all divided by nation, so Somalia, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Iran, Afghanistan, and it represents just how the people used to be seated in the cafe in the jungle. Just as the audience settles in, the space erupts into a kind of 360-degree chaos. And for about 10 minutes, the audience is caught off guard with talk about the camp being bulldozed. Now we've heard that maybe the police will start doing something tomorrow morning. Reports about a boy being run over crossing a highway. His shrouded body is brought in while people sing funeral music. Eventually, the deafening sounds of bulldozers combined with bright lights overwhelm the space. Then, the action freezes, and a man steps forward. Welcome to Calais. 22 miles from the coast of Britain. On a good day, you can just about see the white cliffs of Dover. Today (laughs) is not a good day. My name is Ammar Haj Ahmed. I am a Syrian-British actor. I play Safi in the jungle. And Safi is one of the residents of the jungle, one of the refugees. He is a Syrian character as well. He's a graduate from English literature and languages in the University of Aleppo. And I am the narrator of the story. The rest of the play is more or less the story of the short-lived migrant camp from its beginnings in February 2015 to its end in October 2016, and of the dangerous journeys of the refugees who traveled thousands of miles across land and water to get there. The jungle was conceived by two Englishmen. My name is Joe Robertson, and I am one of the co-writers of The Jungle. I'm Joe Murphy, and I'm the other co-writer of The Jungle. The two Joes, as the company calls them, are both 28 and met at Oxford University. They decided to travel to the continent to see the migrant crisis up close and see if they could volunteer, says Murphy. We went via Calais and found this strange city that was growing full of people from about 30 different countries speaking dozens and dozens of languages and people who'd created a rough, disgusting, ad hoc but strangely hopeful society and we're living there in the hope of one day reaching the UK. Robertson says it's not surprising that the jungle, which held anywhere from 8,000 to 12,000 transients at any given time, was located in Calais. There have been camps in Calais for a long time, and there have been refugees in Calais for even longer. You know, for decades now, it's been the place that if you wanted to try to get to the UK, that's where you would go. It's 22 miles from Britain. It's serviced by multiple ferries a day, taking big haulage trucks under the Channel Tunnel. The camp's residents called it Jungal, which is a Pashto word for forest. But it got mangled by British volunteers into jungle. Let's count the things that kill us. Chemicals. Snakes. 
The filthy land, all rubbish. Better than bombs, Muhammad. Cold, wind, rain. Terrorists, the Taliban. The French police. Drought, famine. Each other. We are safer than at any time in our lives. For seven months, the two Joes lived in the jungle as well. They raised money online to purchase a second-hand geodesic dome and created a theater in it, where the residents could gather and share their stories. It functioned really as a town hall or a place of worship in a way, a place of peace and of calm, dedicated to expression. We found that people would come for different reasons to the theatre. Some people were really ready to confront their you know, traumatic experiences that they'd just been through. Others simply wanted to escape those experiences. On any given night, you could see an Iranian doing stand-up comedy or an Eritrean circus act. When the French authorities eventually bulldozed the jungle to the ground, the two Joes and the two directors decided to create a theater piece which would allow audiences to hear some of the harrowing stories they heard in an intimate setting. Joe Murphy says they chose the Afghan restaurant because it had been a natural gathering place in the camp. Before people went out to try every night on the trucks or the trains, people would gather there to eat. And, you know, there was a kind of almost a ceremonial or ritualistic quality about the time that people spent there. So many tried, so many succeed. The sound we make when someone arrives safely to UK, we call it a good chance. Good chance is the dream. The play was developed over the course of several workshops. A few of the actors had actually spent time in the jungle, while many others created parts of their characters based on their own immigrant stories. Even though Eritrean actress Nahel Tezgai grew up in the UK... My mom had gone to the jungle... And she'd explained to me a lot of what she saw because she met lots of young Eritrean men who'd been injured from trying to cross. So she got talking to them, they took her, so she saw a little bit of it and she said it was devastating. Tezgai plays an elder in the community, the representative of the Eritreans as well as many of the women in the camp. The centre has only a few places, Salah, it was full after a Where week. is her husband? I do not have husband. Listen, Zangal is no place for a woman on her own. And that is exactly yeah. why I am here. Our voices should be heard in these meetings. In addition to serving as narrator, Syrian-born actor Amar Haj Ahmad also plays an elder. He says the immersive staging means that during some particularly intense moments in the play, he's close enough for people to touch him. And sometimes they do. So this atmosphere of being completely immersed emotionally and physically makes it really real. You know, when I sit beside the audience, there are moments where people will put their hand on me. To comfort his character. I think when we try to understand others humbly, not arrogantly, not like, yeah, yeah, I can, I understand, because we say it a lot, I understand you, I, and, you know, I know what you're going through. We don't know. But I learned that the moment you really try to put yourself in others' shoes, this energy is enough. I spoke more English in the jungle than I do in England. I feel my heart closing every day. It takes pain to live side by side. It takes even more to live alone. And now you know. 
that the jungle has come from England while President Trump's travel ban for people from primarily Muslim countries is in effect means that it's something of a miracle that Amar Haj Ahmad and two other actors who are Iranian citizens were actually able to come to perform in Brooklyn. The immigration situation is the issue of our time. Co-director Justin Martin. And we're going to have to have a response to it. And I hope that we have a response that is full of humanity, not full of division. The actors in the jungle say there's something cathartic about being part of this timely piece of theatre. I will always say that it's not a play about refugees. It's about us humans. And yes, the title, the story, the politics, everything suggests, and it is about refugees and about migrant camps, but every audience member who leaves that place, they say, what can I do? It stirs questions inside us, and I think that's what's important. The Jungle runs through January 27th at St. Anne's Warehouse in Brooklyn. Jeff London produced our story. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. At Cool Bed, our executive producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is Andrew Adam Newman. How come three names? What's up with that? Our sound engineer is Sandra Lopez-Monsalve. Our producers are Sam Kim, Zoe Saunders, Lauren Hansen, Evan Chung, and Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is Morgan Flannery. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Cool outfit. Natural fibers, huh? Always. And thank you very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. Walking into that space and seeing those paintings just transformative for me. How the discovery of an overlooked painter who died 75 years ago is upending art history. You know, like, what else is there? What else are we going to discover now that this has happened? The way ahead of her time art of Hilma af Klint. Next time on Studio 360.